Welcome to the RBC podcast, Veterinary Science on the Move. I am Matthias Kleins, and today we will be talking to Dr. Pete Mantis, who will give us an idea of the applications of magnetic resonance imaging in veterinary medicine. Pete, could you explain to our listeners in brief terms what MRI actually is and how it works? Mm, that sounds like the million-dollar question. Now, yeah, right? I'm sorry. I'm not making it easy for you here, but <laughs> I think... Basically, MRI employs radio waves and magnetic fields, okay? Now, in all living tissues, we have hydrogen atoms, okay, also called protons, so we will call them protons from mm -hmm. now on, okay? And they are mainly in the form of water. Now, these protons are what we use on MRI's active nuclei. Basically, we use them for two main reasons. They are abundant in the body, and they give us the best signal. Because they have a large magnetic moment, another fancy term there. Now, this proton has a single positive charge, okay? And it spins around its own axis. But also... It processes like a spinning top, like this kid's toy thing. Now, imagine now you have a charge that is moving, which is basically we can consider that as an electrical current, and that current will induce, physics 101, a magnetic field. So imagine now that your body has billions of those spinning protons, that they are actually like tiny magnets. These guys now, normally, they are randomly aligned, and they cancel each other out. Because otherwise we'd att be attracted to any magnet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an, an interesting concept there. And then you put this patient inside the scanner, okay? This now all going to, are going to align with the external strong field you're going to use. And again, most will cancel each other out with one difference, that one or two per million about will not cancel each other out. So they will give you like a magnetic vector. Imagine yourself like an arrow that goes in the direction of the magnetic field. And they continue to process at a frequency that is different depending on the different strengths of the magnetic fields out there. Mm -hmm. You know, we have various magnets from 0.2.3 Tesla to whatever. Now we're talking 3 Tesla or even more. Now they define the resolution of the images you can acquire in the end. In the stronger the magnet, actually, the most homogeneous is the field. Yeah. So, supposedly, you get more signal mm -hmm. out of it. But with technology now, even the weaker, usually permanent magnets that they are very small in Tesla, if you like, its strength, even these smaller magnets can provide a pretty good image and they are much less costly, of course, than mm -hmm. the superconducting magnets with higher strength of the magnet. We use a coil to give a burst of energy. Now, the vector in your body, which is aligned with the original magnetic field, starts to shift mm -hmm. in the XY direction. So it goes so this, sideways, basically. Exactly. And this longitudinal magnetization is reduced, and you have now a transverse, as it's called, magnetization, yeah. because your vector has changed the angle. Mm -hmm. Now, when you stop the pulse, the, everything, these dipoles, they start losing energy, and the vector comes back to the longitudinal orientation. So the transverse is gone and it comes back. Yeah, the transverse reduces till zero to back again, and then you have again back the longitudinal uh, uh, orientation. So this regain longitudinal, if you like, magnetization is what we call T1 relaxation. While the losing of the transverse magnetization is what is called to relaxation. My apologies to physicists, I try to explain <laughs> as simple as possible so that most people will understand. Now, as this happens, 
they give off signal and we have detector coils that they pick up the signal. And that's how it is reconstructed. Now, the rate that is T1 and T2 changes. Uh, relaxation changes, absolutely, depends on the tissue the proton is in, and that gives contrast between the tissues, and also how many numbers, you know, mm -hmm. a tissue with more protons will have a different contrast appearance to a tissue with less protons. And then you use three other coils that will help you with smaller amount of magnetic field, if you like, that will help you localize where exactly the signal came from in a three-dimensional structure, exactly which volume it came from and where exactly which point in the X, Y uh, and Z axis this point is. And that's then you reconstruct the image with fancy maths and you get the final image on MRI. And I think, with my apologies, that's the simplest way I can think of of putting of how it works in the simplest terms. So, so basically what happens is that you align all your protons in the body in the first place. You disturb this alignment magnetically. You watch those protons coming back to their default spin, so mm -hmm. to say, and that's recorded electronically. And depending on the richness of a tissue in protons, probably meaning how rich a tissue is in water, you get a different image on your readout in the yeah. end. And also its tissue and the composition will change this relaxation times and that will give a contrast in the simplest of terms really. Mm -hmm. So, so that now that we probably bored our listeners to death with the detail of it, what are actually the major clinical applications of MRI? In what way is it different from ultrasound and X-ray and where are the great advantages, which fields can you therefore use it in? Actually, the clinical applications of MRI, of MRI the way I see it, are really limitless. You can choose a tissue and there is, I'm sure there is some kind of a sequence you can use and examine it. In reality, and especially in the veterinary reality, that MRI is kind of a recent thing, if you like, it's down the last few years. Basically, we use them for brain and spine, and that has to do mainly with cost. That's mainly in small animals and large animals. You can use they use it mainly, of course, for legs because then lameness is a major issue in those animals. Also, we have progressed and we start using it more for musculoskeletal, mm -hmm. mainly for joints like stifle. If you like, we examine the peripheral nerves and especially the brachial plexus and of course I'm pretty sure as uh, it becomes more available technology improves it becomes more cost effective if you like because currently it's quite costly other techniques will enter like uh, magnetic resonance angiography that will allow us to do a lot of stuff especially with cardiac patients and not only and also we will start using more gated techniques that will allow us to see and evaluate lungs and uh, heart uh, without interfering with emotion artifacts you will have. So the big disciplines where it's used is oncology on one hand and then orthopedic diseases, probably neurological Basically, diseases neurology as well. and right? orthopedic diseases mainly, and that has to do mainly with cost for the time being in veterinary medicine. Because it's still a very, very costly technique to it use. It is, it is extremely costly considering the cost for an ultrasound or a computer tomographic examination. So currently, computer tomography can cover a lot of areas and it's much more cost effective. So most clinicians will prefer that on the cost basis, while MRIs, 
usually used in areas that is because of the superior contrast resolution, especially in brain mm-hmm. and spine, in comparison even to computer tomography, it's used mainly for those areas. It also has the advantage that, for example, within the cranium, you actually can't really get in there so well with x-ray because the bone will cancel the signals out to some extent, right? You can't do a computer tomography image of the brain so well. Actually, you can, you but, the, yeah, but basically you have a, not such a good signal, if you like, and yeah. actually the contrast of the tissue is not that great. If you see a brain setting for computer tomography is a very rough image. You get an exactly. idea of the gray and the white matter, but you don't get the fraction of the that you get on MRI. But there's a friend of mine, radiologist, put it that sometimes we see more than what we would like to <laughs> see on the brain. So do you think there's a problem that, you know, this like superior diagnostic technique sometimes um, makes clinician worse clinicians because now they can get everything in black and white and they focus so much on their MRI readouts that sometimes they forget about the clinical symptoms and basic clinical examination? Or is that I a would, controversial I would, statement? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it definitely makes. I'm pretty sure a lot is based on the clinical examination because Yes, you can have a whole body scan if you like, but that's extremely costly. Exactly. You have to identify yeah. what you're looking for and concentrate in that area. So <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say that the, it makes veterinary surgeons worse clinicians because they still have to do the clinical work. They have to take the history, examine the animal, mm. do a proper examination, and then concentrate, and concentrate. in an area and yeah. then go from there. I just asked that question because in the human field, it seems to get to the stage where with any problem, you will have an MRI scan first before you see see a specialist even. At least that's the, the case in some countries, probably not so much in England, but in other countries where the public health services are more free giving, that seems to be the case. Anyway, probably that's, that's a side issue. Um, you've been involved in some work which actually has looked at trying to diagnose brain tumors using MRI in dogs. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how exactly you, you went about this? Because if I think about it, the problem will be you're still basically yeah, determining soft tissue and soft tissue. So, so what, what factors exactly do you look at to actually determine is the lesion I'm seeing a brain tumor or is it just another change in brain structure, for example, an abscess? Actually, that is currently, I think, the question. And what's going on over there is there are a lot of studies that they try to determine that. Because on MRI, you see a lesion or more than one, usually within the brain, or if you like, within the spine, we can expand. And then, actually, you don't really know exactly is that now a tumor we're dealing with, of course, that will affect treatment, prognosis, and all the rest, or is that just an inflammation we're dealing with, things get better with some of them. And so we did a study trying to see, are there any signs that will tilt us more into one direction? Most radiologists already use some signs, but we were trying to see, are there anything that we can actually say definitely, this sign will lead you more to a tumor, or if you don't see it, go more for an inflammatory lesion. And actually we found a few signs that they help, except where exactly the lesion is and how old is the animal, and you know, the drill, the older the animal, you know, the more you will think on neoplasia than anything else. But we found some signs that you can see on MRI that will help you lead more towards a tumor 
than anything else. And that includes a single lesion. Usually tumors, they tend to be single. That doesn't necessarily mean if there are many, they are not tumors. You can have, for example, a lymphoma lesion that would be a tumor. Or if it is, for example, meaning encephalitis cannot be single. All it says is that most tumors, they tend to be single entities. It has usually, surprisingly, tumors, they have more regular shape while inflammations and other lesions, they tend to be more irregular. If tumors, they tend, as expected, to give more mass effect, either due to the bulk of tumor or also to the associated edema. You have dural contact in the dural matter and dural tail sign. This is an appearance like a tail on the dura, and these two, they usually combine with meningiomas that you can see them. If the adjacent bone is affected, For example, you have a periosteal reaction, which is something sometimes that's the only thing you may pick on a radiograph with an intracranial tumor. Infiltrative growth of the tumor. Exactly. That will lead you more to the tumor. And of course, patterns of contrast enhancement that you can see. Usually contrast enhancement is more common with tumors or neoplasias, if you like, than other lesions in the brain. So we have a list like this that you can work and try to differentiate a small tumor or it's more likely to be some kind of an inflammatory or other type of lesion within the brain. That for me still sounds a little bit as if you're doing gross pathology on an intact head, however. You basically see the things which a pathologist would see if you would dissect the animal. You don't see dead, on right? a cellular or a cellular level. Though. That, that's okay. what I'm thinking. Because the pathology, on the other hand, will then have the option to go into more detail by doing histology as soon as he's excised the tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any technologies in MRI which will probably help to move the field in that direction? I can only think of contrast agents. which There is a lot of work with contrast agents that uh, actually tries to... Uh, help also with the diagnosis. But mainly contrast agents, the main field of work there, and that's my understanding, is on using radiotherapy and other treatments of tumors and evaluation of response of the tumors to the treatment. We use contrast agents. There are studies out there that try to identify the pattern of contrast agents, if you like, uptake the perfusion of the area and try that to use it in order to become more specific in your diagnosis. But most of the work that I've seen lately is mainly on treatment planning of radiotherapy staging, assessing the tumor response and that those areas, really. Mm-hmm. So the m- most common one I can think of seems to be the gadolinium. That's the one, right? absolutely. The gadolinium DTPA, actually the long of it is mm. D-ethyl-N-triaminopentacetic acid. Yes, I know. It and sounds like a red one. Yes. <laughs> DTPA, that's how they call it. That's the common we use, and usually we use that IV. Gadolinium ion is paramagnetic, very strong. Okay, so it can be used, but as an ion is very toxic, so it has to be chelated with, I won't say the long word again, just DTPA, which is water soluble and most importantly, it stays bound till it's excreted from the body. Okay. So you're not going to end up with a lot of gadolinium ions in there. You never know, poisoning by gadolinium. Mm-hmm. Now, We use this intravenously, and what happens is this guy, it shortens, if you remember, the T1 and T2 relaxation. Now, on T1 relaxation, the shortening results in a brighter image. It makes it more white. Mm-hmm. Okay. While on T2, it doesn't end up brighter. Okay. And because for us, contrast means more white, we tend to use it with a T1 
weighted images. Yeah. So you will do a simple T1 and then you will do a T1 weighted with gadolinium, the TPA that you have given. So if the blunt brain barrier, for example, for the brain is broken, then it can you pass. You will suddenly see a bright image of the brain. Exactly. And when you compare the two, it's quite sometimes a very impressive difference. Yeah. You may have a T1 that you scarcely see a lesion and then it looks like it flares up with gadolinium. Or a highly perfused malignant tumor which is growing mm-hmm. rapidly would Absolutely. possibly take up a lot of gandolinium because it has a huge blood supply and you yes. would see it as a bright image as well. Oh, yeah. right? And some of the tumors actually because they get a central necrosis, you see the contrast around mm-hmm. and you don't see any contrast inside and that gives you an indication also that it's probably more necrotic in the center. Mm-hmm. And, and in the long run, do you think it will be possible to be even more specific than just looking for actually, factors which determine vascularization, really use other chemicals which bind to specific structures? Absolutely. Specific Absolutely. Structures. Uh, they, now they use contrast agents with labeled cells. Okay. And uh, for example, they, w- they can use uh, what they call now super paramagnetic agents. And these are usually iron oxide particles, manganese, that they give also IV. But these are more specific. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, more specific agents, usually they are taken by the Kupfer cells in the liver. So, in, so in you way, can all you have to have to determine is you have to have one of these compounds like gandolinium, which causes a shift in your T1s, which you then have to be able to deliver to a targeted tissue. So you could, in theory, even do that with an antibody, but I'm oh, not yeah. sure whether that's technically possible. I haven't. I'm not aware of any antibody yet, so I'm not going to be surprised in the future. But basically, you need the substance, paramagnetic or not. Mm-hmm. But basically, what it will do is change the characteristic of the tissue yeah so that will shorten if you like t1 or t2 so it will change the relaxation times mm-hmm. so this tissue will actually flare up yes ideally you can currently they have found a way to bound them into cells you never know it may become antibodies and then you have also the other things that you can use uh, the gadolinium to check the agiogenic properties of a tumor and they, they are, there are a lot of, there is a lot of work in that direction. So I'm pretty sure in the future we're going to see some exciting stuff. So you probably will be able to see not just that there is a tumor, but with the right substance and with the right targeting mechanism, you'll also be able to say, is it a melanoma? Is it a carcinoma? I have to say, I'm an optimist and they have managed to do stuff like that in other specialties, if you like, in mm-hmm. other directions. So why not on MRI? Well, that sounds very exciting. I think in the future we'll probably hear much more about the applications of this technique and hopefully much more about the work you're doing in the field. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. to talk to you. Thank you. That's it from the RBC podcast for this time. Please make sure you stay tuned by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, please send them to podcast at rbc.ac.uk. Goodbye.